this series fulfilled. Uh, if you um, haven't seen some of the promotion or what we've talked about before of this, uh, there are a lot of prophecies in the Bible. And oftentimes we talk about, we say, hey, there's all these prophecies. And what were they for? They were to help us. God told the future so that way we would know that what he was telling us was actually from God. Because people have a, can't really tell the future all that well. God knows the future 100%. And so he sends prophets and he gave these, these prophets and these prophecies uh, to let us know that, that what happened, these are, are legitimately from him. There are a lot of religions in the world. There's a lot of people who claim to be from God. And so God wanted us to make sure that we knew exactly who was his Messiah. In fact, he gave over 300 prophecies about Jesus. Some of them occurred hundreds, even thousands of years before he came. And these prophecies were handed down and we waited and waited and then they were fulfilled in one man and the man of Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing thing. So the next uh, six weeks today and then five weeks after this, we're going to be going through and looking at some of these prophecies uh, of how we know Jesus is actually the one that, that he claimed to be. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, uh, prophecies about Jesus' deity, his lineage, his humanity, his ministry. And today... We're going to discuss uh, why we can call him Savior. In fact, there's a lot of prophecies in in the Old Testament uh, about Jesus being Savior. One in particular that we're going to cover, and that's found in the the book of Isaiah, page 50, or Isaiah 53. And uh, if you have a Bible, you want to open it there. If you're using one of our, our Bibles here, that's going to be page 511. It's kind of there in the middle. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a Bible... Just take one of ours. This is great. This will be our gift to you. It's a great thing. Um, but Isaiah uh, 53. And while you're turning to Isaiah 53 and look at this ancient prophecy, let me tell you a little about, uh, let me set the context for this. Uh, about 2,000 years before Jesus came, God called a man named Abraham. And after he called him, it was Abram was his original name. And uh, God renamed him. And he gave him this promise. He said, you're going to, be, you're going to have a nation after you. And, there, and my, my Messiah is going to come through you, the Savior. A, a blessing to the whole world is going to come through your lineage. And then uh, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob got his name changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. And that's what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, they had a famine, so they moved down to Egypt. It's a great story. Then in Genesis, you want to read about how that happens. And they stayed there in Egypt and eventually become slaves. And are there till around 1,500 years before Christ came. And God raises up a man named Moses to be their deliverer. He's going to bring them to the promised land. And so all the 12 tribes are now a vast multitude of people. And, and, and so uh, Moses leads them out. And eventually uh, uh, Joshua is the one who actually gets to lead them into the promised land. And they take the promised land. For, for several hundred years, the people of Israel were united, these 12 tribes, and they didn't have a king because God was their king. But eventually they said, everybody else is a king, we want a king. So God said, fine, I'll give you a king, and he gives them a kingdom, and so they're a united kingdom. And so there's Saul, Saul kind of messed up, so then there's David, and David did a great job, and David had a heart for God, and he wanted to build a temple for God, and, and God said, not you, because you're a man of war, but your son, Solomon, can do that. And so now the kingdom of Israel has a temple of God, that's there, united in faith, united in, in nationality, waiting for this, this, this Messiah to come. And, and Solomon, uh, King Solomon, he was um, a, a wise man, but a very lousy husband and father. Didn't do a great job. And he had his, his sons and his royal lineage. His, his, his son, who was going to be the next king, did a uh, boneheaded move and split the kingdom. In fact, 10 of the 12 tribes stayed to the north, and they split away from 
from his, his rule. And they kept the name Israel, but the southern two tribes took the name Judah. And so now you have a divided kingdom. And, and the southern kingdom, they went off and on. Sometimes they were faithful to God, sometimes they were. But the northern kingdom, right from the get-go, they rebelled. They rejected this God. In fact, the very first thing this northern kingdom did, kid you not, is they built a golden calf and said, this is our new place of worship because they didn't want to share this place of worship at the temple. They said, we're going to worship a God the way that we want to worship him. And they built, if you remember way back to Moses, building a golden calf wasn't a great idea. Well, that's what they did. And they built this calf and they have their own worship and things like this. And it just went downhill for, for several hundred years. God sends prophets to, to this northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom telling them, listen, come back to me. Worship me. I love you. I want to, to care for you. And for several hundred years, God sent these prophets to the nation and said, I want your heart. And for several hundred years, the northern kingdom rejected God more and more and more. And finally, it gets to the point where God is, is warning them that, that his patience is running out. If they want to choose their own sin instead of him, he's going to let them have that. And he sends them this prophet named Isaiah around 700 years before Jesus was born. And and Isaiah, he prophesied both to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And his ministry was basically warning them of the consequences. If they continue to walk away from God, eventually they would be separated from God. And there would be, there's going to be bad times. In fact, those times are going to be so bad that the people would wonder if, if God had completely just rejected them. And near the end of his long ministry, God gives Isaiah prophecy of hope. Now, though the people would walk away from God, God would not walk away from his people. In Isaiah 53, God says, I'm going to bring you a Savior. And the Savior is going to do three things. This prophecy talks about very three specific things that the Savior is going to do that, are, that you wouldn't expect a Savior to do, at least two of the three. But that we would know who he is. And so 700 years before Jesus came, these are what uh, the prophet Isaiah wrote, starting in verse 7. He said of this Savior, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By opposition and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The first thing that God says that this Messiah is going to do, this Savior, is he's going to die. And that does not make sense for most, like, it's hard to save people when you're dead. If you don't even save yourself, it's hard to do that. But did you pick up that he didn't just say that this Messiah, the Savior, was going to die? He tells us very specifically how he's going to die. It's, it's fascinating, the detail. I mean, we, we look, he says he was cut off in the land of living. We, we, you know he's going to die. But, but he, he predicts a couple things. The first one he predicts is that he's going to be falsely accused. Look at verse 7. It says he was oppressed and afflicted. And there in verse 9, though he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was an innocent man, didn't do anything wrong, and yet people were going to accuse him. That's a pretty specific prophecy, because not many people are falsely accused, although 
It's not beyond the realm of possibility, people being falsely accused. But this man, the Savior, would know he would be falsely accused. And what happened to Jesus? Well, he was taken before the high priest. And they brought, it tells us, they brought all kinds of witnesses that told all kinds of lies. And people knew that they were lies. They were so ridiculous. And, they said, and the high priest really wanted to kill Jesus. And they couldn't get him by any of these things because they were such ridiculous charges. They were false accusations. So finally, they just convict him on the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah. That's why they killed him. Though there was no deceitful. In fact, it was so bad that, that even the Roman governor that was in charge, Jesus was taken to him and the Jews said, Hey, listen, we want him dead. And Pontius Pilate goes and he, he interviews Jesus and has the ability to set Jesus free. And, and he says, Pilate says to the people, Listen, Jesus has done no crime. There was no fault in him. But the people yelled, crucify him. And so what does Pilate do? He says, you're going to have your way. That's fine. I don't want to riot. So he washes his hands saying, I'm going to give you what you want, but this is wrong. And I don't want any of this guilt on me. The Savior will be falsely accused. Not only that, but it says that he would be rejected by his people. Uh, Verse 8 it says, by opposition and judgment, he was taken away. And who protested? That, that his own people, they would see this injustice. Now, most of us, when we see injustice, what does it make you feel? Mad, right? When you see injustice, somebody stands up and says, that's not right. For a, for a whole people to see this, this perversion of, of the law, to see an innocent man, be condemned, you would think that people would step up and say, this is not right. But it says here that no one would step up and take his defense. And what did we see what happened when Jesus was taken away? Well, there was no one to stand up. The crowds actually cheered, crucify him, crucify him. His own best friend, Peter, denies him three times. No one to stand with him, no one to voice that it was wrong predicted 700 years before, not only that he would be falsely accused, but that that he would be rejected. And not only that, it says this, that he would be silent in his defense. That's a strange prediction. I mean, normally, if if somebody is falsely accused, remember when you were a kid and you got in trouble for something you didn't do? What's the first thing that you say? I didn't do it! Right? Go to most jails. Have you ever know, done prison ministry? You talk to people, what do they say? I didn't do it. I'm, I didn't do it. I'm innocent, right? Most of them are guilty. We don't even have to be innocent to claim that. And yet it predicts, here's this man who's going to be the Savior. And there's something strange about him. He's going to be falsely accused. He's going to be rejected by his people for no good reason. And he's not even going to defend himself. That's a strange prediction. 700 years later, Jesus comes along. And before Pilate, before the high priest, did he defend himself? Did he make his case saying, I'm an innocent man, what are you doing? No, it tells us in the scriptures that he didn't even open his mouth. He was silent, which was one of the reasons that frustrated Pilate. Pilate said, I can save you, just give me something. And Jesus gave him nothing because he laid down his own life. Now it gets weird. Because in verse 9 it says that he would be assigned 
a grave with the wicked, that he would be executed amongst criminals. Now, how weird is that? Here's a man who's falsely accused, a man who's rejected by his people, a man who doesn't defend himself, is also going to die in the presence amongst criminals, as though he were a criminal himself. Now, that's a strange prediction right there. It's not that they would just kill him alone. No, they're going to kill him with criminals. And 700 years later, Jesus hangs on a cross between two thieves. And then, it gets even crazier. He dies. The Savior is going to die. It says, He will cut off in the land of the living, verse 8. Now, if I was going to make a prediction about a Savior, I would say this. He saves you. He's alive, he's powerful, he overcomes the bad guys, and he saves you. But this very, the very first thing, before we even get to saving, it says he dies. And he dies in such a way that he, he's falsely accused, he's already rejected, he's, he's a condemned, a perversion of the, of the law. He's, he's put together with criminals, and he dies. This is a strange prediction for a savior. But 700 years later... Jesus was on that cross, and he was dead. And, and the Roman guards who were sent there to break his legs to make sure he died faster didn't break his legs because they could see he was dead. So instead, they put a spear right up into his side, pierced his heart, put a hole about the size of your fist inside of his heart. And they pulled it out, and blood and water came out, proving that he had already died long before. And the Savior died. And then, something that Jesus could not have manipulated... It says that he would be buried with rich people. He'd be honored in death. It says this in uh, verse 9. It says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That though he was executed amongst criminals, though he was rejected by his own people, though he was falsely accused and did not defend himself, some reason, somehow, this Savior, after he died, would be buried with the wealthy, would be honored? That's a weird prophecy. And yet, 700 years later, while Jesus was on the cross, and they would take the other criminals, and they were going to throw their bodies, their lifeless bodies, into Gehenna to be burned. Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, a wealthy man, begs to have Jesus buried in his own tomb. And Jesus is buried in the tomb of a rich man with a giant stone rolled across the front. To the letter, seven centuries later, with such precision and detail, the Messiah came. The Messiah was falsely accused. The Messiah uh, did not defend himself. The Messiah was rejected. The Messiah died amongst thieves. The Messiah was buried in a rich man's tomb. But you know what? It would be a lousy prophecy if it ended there, right? You're like, well, that's it's a good thing. That's not the only thing the Savior was going to do. Here's the next thing. This is the one that gives me all goosebumps. Is that the Savior would experience resurrection. Now, you talk about the first part. That's kind of unbelievable stuff. But then we get to this, and you're like, what? That he's going to, 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 to experience resurrection. In verse 10, it says, Yet it, it was the Lord's will to crush him and, and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days. How do you prolong somebody's days who's dead? And it says, And... 
And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, this is not before, it says right there, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. You know what that means? He's going to raise again. After he's died, he'll be alive. And by his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. It wasn't unexpected. And we today celebrate a resurrection. We celebrate the very real, very verifiable fact that Jesus arose from the grave. But that resurrection would mean nothing if he didn't die the way he died. But because he died the way that he died, because he was falsely accused, because he was innocent, because he did not defend himself, because he was executed amongst thieves, because he was buried in a rich man's tomb, this resurrection, we know, was was authored by God. And Jesus came back three days later. You know, the thing is amazing here. It says this is God's plan. I think most people on that, that dark Friday probably wondered where God is. How can God sit back and watch this injustice take place? Isn't this the Messiah? Isn't this the Savior? Isn't this the one who's going to restore the people of Israel? Isn't this God's powerful servant? How could he just die? And they would wonder and they would look, but it said this was God's will. But what was his will? Not that his son would just die, but that God would make his son, his life an offering for sin, so that he could justify many. There was a purpose to it, but there was also a promise in the sacrifice that he would come back again and he would never taste death again. He would completely overcome death. Jesus understood this. That's why in in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus said this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. The command I receive, this is the command I receive from my Father. Jesus knew the resurrection was coming. And we get to celebrate it today. This is one of the reasons we know that he actually is the Savior. 700 years before he came, Jesus was, was prophesied. God said, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to die in this very specific way, and he's going to be raised again. Now that is an unbelievable prophecy. Because people just don't normally get up out of their graves. But Jesus did. Which gives us reason to take note for the next thing that the Savior was going to do. This is why the resurrection is such great news for us. Because if it just stopped there and it's like Jesus died and he rose again and that was it, where does that leave us? We're still lost. We still suffer death. What good is Jesus' resurrection if the prophecy ended there? He wouldn't be much of a savior, but he is much of a savior. And that's why after the death and after the resurrection, The prophet, seven centuries earlier, said that the Savior would provide salvation for many. It says in verse 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let me clear that language up for you, because it's written to old people a long time ago. He died for our sins. He sets us free. He saves us. 
All the guilt, all the shame, all the things that I had done wrong in my entire life were paid for. I couldn't save myself, but Jesus saves me. And it says not just me, but for many. And how does he save? He saves by God's grace. How do we receive that? Well, we had a memory verse today, remember? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What an amazing thing. As we bring this message to a close, as we look at these prophecies, and I hope that you, you take this for granted, this is, this is not, this is not a, a, on a whim that Jesus just came. Right? It was planned from, from the very beginning. God loves people. He even sends this message of hope to a nation that rejected him over and over and over again. To a nation that rejected him so much that they, they even began their nation by, by, building, by building an altar to a false god. But did God walk away? No. God came and saved. You see, in our own world, in our own life, I don't know where, where you are, I, but for me, I can think of this morning. I had a rough morning. A lot of bad things happened this morning. It was just a hard morning for me. And, uh, and I probably did probably ten things this morning that I would be worthy of hell for. I can think of it, right? Tailgated people. Uh, I was mad. I snapped at my son. I mean, it was a bad morning. But I'm not saved by my good works. I'm saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Every single day, I am saved. And I'm God's child, and he loves me. I don't bear the burden of the weight of my own guilt any longer. And maybe you're this morning and you bear that guilt still, or that burden, or you're here trying to, to do things good enough to, to earn your way back to God, and God says he's done everything so that you can just come to him. I always like to make sure that we have an application. It's the worst thing that you can do to come to God's word and not have something to do about it. So how do you put this into practice? Well, I have some suggestions for you. If you're on the back of your connection card, if you look, there's some things that maybe that can help you to put this into play. Maybe the first thing for you to do this week is to start memorizing Ephesians 2.8. Maybe you're a person that, that oftentimes struggles with grace. It feels so wrong, doesn't it? It feels so wrong to say, I've done these bad things uh, and I can be forgiven. I can just be forgiven. That maybe I should have some penance that I need to do. I need to suffer for the wrong stuff I've done, the failures and the ways that I... But here's the good news for you. That that's not the way that it works. You're not saved by suffering for what you've done wrong. You could never pay that debt. So God paid it for you. And maybe when, when that guilt comes into your life and tries to bring shame... You have God's word in your heart and reminds that I am saved by God's grace through faith. And this is not from myself. It is the gift of God. Maybe that's the truth that you need to start carrying into your heart and your life so that you can begin receiving. We don't live as Christians in a, in a certain way so that we can be saved. We live in a certain way because we are saved. Because God has given us a new life and we get to live for bigger things. And maybe this is where you need to begin. 
It is to have God's Word come into your heart, into your life, and to free you from the false guilt that keeps so many of us down. Or maybe this, maybe you want to read about this Savior. You know, he actually came. He was prophesied. The Savior was going to come 700 years before he came, and he filled the prophecy to the letter. And you're going to say, those are pretty crazy prophecies. They're very specific. You want to read about his life? What did he actually do? Well, read the Gospel of Mark. Why? It's a fun gospel. You get to see what Jesus did. It's a gospel of action. This is eyewitness account of this life of the Savior. What did he do? What did he say? What did, what did he claim? Maybe this week this is what you do. Is you say, you know, I want to get to know this Savior better. And so you'll begin to read, read the Gospel of Mark. It's powerful, powerful. 16 chapters. It's not long, but it's amazing. It can change your life. Or how about this? Maybe you need to attend the next five weeks. Maybe you have questions about who this, this Jesus is. Do you want to see the prophecies? You've heard people say there's been prophecies about Jesus. You want to see some of them? I invite you to come back the next five weeks. Maybe that's what you commit to. You're going to say, you know what? You're here this morning for a reason. You came to church this morning for a reason. If it was to connect to God, to know who He is, let's find out together. Let's look at these ancient prophecies. Let's see, did Jesus really fulfill them? I think your faith is going to be increased. And you're going to know for sure that the one that we follow is legitimate, was authorized by God to do exactly what He claimed to do. And isn't that a great thing? So maybe that's what you commit to. Or maybe this. Maybe you need to accept Jesus to be your Savior. He came for a reason. God authorized him to come for a reason. His ministry didn't begin in a cave. It didn't begin with an I told you, you know, just trust me. His ministry began with, with all kinds of prophecies that he could point to. And so the people could point to and say, this guy really is from God. But all of that happens. You're saved by God's grace. And God's grace is offered to everybody, but it's just a gift. And gifts need to be received. And if I have a gift this morning and I was going to give it to you and you never come and pick it up, that gift does you absolutely no good. So how do you receive that gift? It is if you are saved by God's grace through faith. And what does that mean? I'm sure you have lots of questions. Let me know. If you need to accept Jesus as your Savior so you can have that gift of eternal life, that gift of peace with God, that gift of, of having your guilt removed and your shame gone, that gift of having peace with God and assurance for forever, to have purpose in life now, if you need to receive that gift, let me know. Make sure that you give me some contact information. I will call you this week. We'll get together. We'll talk about it. I'll answer your questions. I'll help you take the steps of faith that the Bible talks about how do we begin to follow him, and not just so that you can become a Christian, but then also as you become a Christian, how to grow in faith and grow strong in that faith, to live in the purpose and the power of God. If that's what you need to begin with this morning, start your journey. Every journey just starts with that first step. And if that's you this morning, let me know. Make sure I can contact you. You know, or maybe you're here this morning and you have something else you'd like to commit to. Let me know that. Or, Or if you have a prayer request. You know this God that we, we serve? He's powerful. He's so powerful he can overcome his own grave. And that was easy for him. Uh, he can do anything. And he tells us, he asks us, he says, I want to talk to you. He wants us to, to commune with him. He asks us to, to, to bring our requests and our concerns to him. We call that prayer. And if I can pray with you over something, let me know. We've seen God do amazing things. So let me pray for you this week. Let me know what your requests are. And then in a few minutes, uh, we're going to take our offering. And as we take our offering, take this connection card. Would you please put it in a basket for me? And we can just see what God does. It'd be good stuff. Before we do that, however, 
we like to talk to our, our great God, and not just me, but it's an opportunity for anybody who wants to speak to God, you can, whether it's uh, through your words or just uh, the quiet of your heart. Um, so we're going to pray for this, and then we'll take our offering, and then after, uh, after that we'll have some time of worship. But if you would begin, uh, bow your head with me, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to our wonderful Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your Son. We thank you that you saved us from our sins, that you sent a Savior because we were lost because we weren't seeking you, because we were doing the wrong thing. And yet while we were still your enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. And he did it willingly. And this was your plan because you wanted wanted more for us than what we deserved. And Father, we're here today because we've received that. We trust the Savior that you sent, not blindly, You gave us lots of reasons to trust him. You gave us all these prophecies, and we're thankful for the prophets so that we would know and identify the Savior when he came. But Father, now that he's here, let us serve him. Let us come back to you. And Father, as uh, as we continue our time of worship and and prayer this morning, uh, if there are prayer requests in, in the hearts of our people, Father, I pray that I thank you that you hear them that you always answer them out of your goodness. If you sent Jesus to save, certainly you've sent the Holy Spirit as well to assist and help us to grow, to empower us for for acts of good work. And so, Father, as as we continue this time of prayer, I thank you that you hear these prayers. May they bring you honor, we ask in Christ's name.